Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasts. Kindness is a free lifestyle that anyone can live. Why is there so much damn hate? Hello! I want to welcome you guys to my new podcast, Crime Connections. That's where I talk with real survivors about real shit. I am Tiffany, your host. Today, I'm talking with Michael Chase, who is able to survive the Boston bombing back in 2013. I do want to warn you, it does get a little graphic. You definitely appear to have a lot of hats. It shows speaker, teacher, coach, and cop. Correct. Yeah. Are you all of those still right now? Uh, yeah, in many facets, I still am. I started my journey mm-hmm. as a, an educator working at an alternative high school. I live just about 14 miles north of Boston. So I'm in a suburb uh, just north of the city. Um, when I kind of found my, my path at 21 years old, I was kind of figuring out where I was going to go. And I landed at an alternative high school just north of the city. But we service kids from all over. Kids from about 20 different districts could show up at our door at any point in time. And those are kids that struggled at their public ed high school from a variety of situations, whether it was social, emotional, behavioral disabilities, they could have found themselves in our program. I initially came through the door and found myself teaching basically like a sixth grade, seventh grade level math to some high school kids that were struggling academically. Um, that's kind of where I found my fit in the education world. Um, no, I, I kinda, love that. Yeah. I was actually in SLD. I have dyslexia. So okay. <laughs> yay me. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so you understand, you understand the difficulties of being in a classroom and, and things don't come easy, right? So that, that's a lot of the kids that I dealt with. Um, academics weren't, weren't their primary objectives in, in the day-to-day. So a lot of the stuff that I did was relationship developing. It was trying to figure out how we can help those kids get to just through their day more so than anything. These weren't kids that were typically college bound. Very, very few were going off to four or even two-year universities. Um, these were kids just were typically trying to just kind of navigate the day and day. Uh, when we first started there, it was a 40-kid high school. I grew to 120 by the time my, my career ended there. But initially, there was a lot of kids that were gang involvement, kids that were carrying weapons to school, um, getting in fights on a regular basis, um, had to pay attention to which bus stop they got off on and when they took the T into Boston, back home, um, where they got off because there'd be a rival gang waiting for them or whatever it could be. So we, we had a lot of kids from diverse populations that came and they all had this stuff. And it was my first opportunity to learn how to develop, develop and build relationships with kids that didn't grow up like I did. Um, I grew up in a, a nice community here in Danvers, Massachusetts. I was raised by a mom who was a nurse and a dad who was a cop. I had two loving parents. Kind of went their separate ways when I was 10. But at the same time, I, I, was, I was raised by two parents that really loved and adored me and cared for me. Um, so a lot of the kids that I had in my initial years in education, they, they didn't um, have the same upbringing I did. And they definitely didn't have the, the respect that, that I had for police officers growing up. Right. Well, when yeah. you're also living that kind of life, you're kind of taught not to like them, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that we're kind of in that culture right now a little bit too, right? So uh, I think, you know, in today's society, I think there's a, there's a segment of the population that still struggle with those relationships with law enforcement. And I understand that. As a cop, you, you show up at somebody's doorstep, you're, you're typically showing up there on their worst day. A lot of people don't call for our support or with the law enforcement community. We, we, you know, when you show up at somebody's doorstep, it's for a domestic violence situation or something that's going on in their home. And uh, nine times out of 10, they're not looking forward to seeing you. And that's something that, you know, police officers and, and law enforcement have to work really hard on, I think, to develop those relationships um, with every segment of the population and communities. And that's uh, one of the primary objectives um, in today's society as well. I'll give you that. Somebody... I can't remember where I read it, but it said like normal people run away from like a disaster and you guys run for it. So I commend you (laughs) because mm -mm, I ain't sticking around. (laughs) (laughs) I think something like it's, it's an eight, you know, and I think there's biology that's in place there too, as well as like the fight, flight or freeze mentality. And and some people just wired differently and, and that's okay. And there's still some cops that get stuck in situations where they do freeze in certain situations. And like I said, that's just a biology segment. And we can, we can talk about that in a little bit. But I've seen situations where people have frozen or run or done, done other things um, as opposed to run into the fray or just go figure it out. And that's not a judgment on that person individually or anything like that. That just kind of, it's one of those things when biology kicks in, you, you might not have an opportunity to determining, you know, de- depending on what the circumstances are, your bio, bio, biology or bio kicks in and um, kind of just takes over in that moment. 
I was amazed to find out that not only were you there for the Boston Marathon in April 2013, but you were only feet away from the second blast. Yeah. After dealing with that, years later, you became a cop. What Correct. the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> crazy. Yeah, it's a crazy story. I, um, As I said, I was raised by a, f- a father who's in law enforcement. He's 74 years old. He's still working currently. He retired as chief of police in the community that I work in now and moved on. And he, he was going to take a couple years off. And next thing you know, he was the chief up in Wolfboro. And that's uh, a beautiful lakeside community in, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. So he's kind of double dipping on the retirement system. He retired in Massachusetts and made his way north, what he calls God's country. And I don't blame him. It's a beautiful area of the country. Um, and he's up there still working. He's 74 years old. Uh, he puts a uniform every day and, and goes to work. So that's kind of like the mentality in the place that I grew up in. So since I was five, I've known I wanted to be a police officer. Um, and along the way, the journey was difficult for me to get where I needed to be. It wasn't easy. At the time that I was trying to get on the police department in 2003, 2004, in Massachusetts, you have to take what they call a civil service exam. So you take that exam, the general educational exam um, against a bunch of other candidates. And at the time, there was no nobody was moving on. There was no attrition. There was no um, nobody really retiring. So there wasn't a lot of jobs open. And at that time, it was a high paying job with great benefits. And a lot of people wanted to be police officers. It was super competitive. Um, so I waited on a, a list for a couple of years. And with nobody moving or grooving out of Danvers, it was just no place for me to go. So I stayed at the school and I was working in education. I had a great job. I was coaching high school soccer. I was really happy with what I was doing, but I always had that goal set that I wanted to, to, to be a cop. So as things kind of progressed, I it was interesting. I was a high school athlete who played soccer with dreams of playing Division One soccer, and I, I had a bunch of knee injuries. And um, following a third ACL reconstruction in my left knee, uh, I threw blood clots to both lungs. And you know, based on the the statistics, um, I'm, I'm fortunate to be here. But maybe should have taken my life. Um, I didn't realize that I was that sick at first. Um, and the next thing you know, I ended up in the hospital, and I was on a blood thinning medication for six months following that that situation. And it was kind of funny. I was a young kid. I was on blood thinners. Typically, those are reserved for the elders in our communities, but it was something I just had to do. So after six months, I came off the med and uh, things were normal. You know, like I said, I was still waiting to get on the police department. Every time there was a test available, I would take it. If there was no no availability, we would have to take the test every two years. Um, and I was just kind of waiting my turn and hopefully one day I'd become a police officer, not realizing that that medication one day would play a major part in whether or not I could be a cop. So long story short, um, there was a couple opportunities for a few of us officers to get on eventually. I quit my job at the school. I coached uh, high school soccer. I quit my job coaching, and I was about two weeks away from the police academy. Uh, When I went in and I had to do my final physical, I met with a a psychologist. I had to do a shrink test there and check my brain to make sure I was all right. I had to pass the physical abilities test, which I did, and then uh, I was going in for my last physical. And the doctor came out with chapter and section, and he said to me, sir, uh, Michael, he said, you you disclosed on your forms here that you were on um, Coumadin, which is the blood thinner. He's like, it's a chronic anticoagulation therapy that they give you. Did you realize that that's a, a discreditor here? You can't be a cop in any state in the United States. And we had no idea at the time. My hematologist didn't realize that because there's plenty of cops in the United States who are on blood thinners. But the states in the United States, every state basically, will not tire you as basically like damaged goods. They don't want you if you're on that that medication because it's you know, the propensity for bleeding or like a head trauma or anything like that, that you could be in really bad shape. So they're not going to take you um, if that's what's going on in your world. So that was kind of a really big gut punch for me. Um, I had kind of spent my early years professionally at the school with the intention of one day becoming a cop. When I interviewed for the job, I spoke to the director of the program and I said, listen, this could be short term. This could be a year or three years. I'm not sure. I'm waiting to get on the police department. At that point, I think it was about 11 um, when we were really starting to roll through it. And I'd been waiting and waiting and waiting and my time had come and I, w- I was off and running with an opportunity to get there. Um, and then that's when the doctor kind of pushed everything and just said, hey, listen, you're done. Your, your, your opportunity to be a cop is over. So that kind of brings me to the marathon, how I, how I got there, right? So if I was a cop at the time, there's a pretty good chance that I would not have been at the marathon that day. The schedule's just probably pretty much not conducive to any of that stuff. Cops work a lot of hours. But one of the benefits of being in Massachusetts and, and being in, in education is the schedule. I talk now and I, I travel and speak to schools and, and students and a bunch of different populations. But when I'm there, I'm always ex- I remind the kids in the audience that the adults there too are pretty fortunate to have the schedule that they have. Um, as we're coming up on a long holiday weekend at, at a school, you know, my daughter's going to be off tomorrow through through Sunday and back to school next week. We get a week in, you know, Christmas and maybe sometimes 10 days. We up here, we do another week in February and a week in April. So that week in April as an educator always gave me an opportunity to get down to Boston and celebrate uh, the marathon. It was something that um, I really, really enjoyed doing. Um, and I think the Boston Marathon is bigger than just just a race. It's not just people going out there to run their personal best or or shoot for a specific time. 
it's an opportunity for people to raise money and awareness for certain nonprofits, especially people run for Boston Children's Hospital, cancer research, um, you name it. There's people out there that are that are organizing to, to spread awareness, to raise finances, to give money back. And just it's that's what it is. It's a sense of giving to say thank you and, and just pay it forward. And that's what Boston's all about. Every year we'd go down, we'd watch the twenty to 30,000 runners come across the finish line. We'd celebrate as close to the finish line as we could. And I had done that for many, many years. Um, and 2013 was no different, to be honest with you. I woke up in the morning, jumped on the uh, on the commuter rail with my then wife, and we made our way into Boston with some friends and family to to just enjoy the race and, and see what it was all about, which we've done, like I said, so many times. And like the city's always hopping. It's, it's amazing. And, and if you've never been to the Boston Marathon, it's a great day. The Red Sox are always playing on Marathon Monday. They have the earliest first pitch in Major League Baseball. It's a tremendous afternoon. As soon as that game's over, the race comes right by Fenway Park. So those people just spill into the streets, support the runners coming by. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's like I said, it's one of my favorite days of the year. So April 2013 was much like so many other days. And I woke up just like I did so many other times. But there was two gentlemen that woke up that morning with a completely different intention um, than we did and all of us celebrating. So as I made way out on the finish line, I happened to bump into a buddy that I went to high school with and played baseball with. He, uh, I saw him on the commuter rail. So we would take the commuter rail out of Beverly, Massachusetts. It's about a 40-minute ride into the city. And uh, I, I bumped into my buddy, Dan, and he was coming down the pack, you know, uh, passenger car on, on the train. And uh, he's, as he's passing by me, he says, hey, Chasey, I'm heading to Atlantic Fish. You want to meet us there? And I'm like, sure, bud. And I had no idea. I'd never heard of the restaurant before in my life. So I quickly picked up my phone and hit the GPS, and I found my way there. So as I'm coming through and, and navigating the, the busy streets of Boston there, I could see Dan. He's got the same haircut as me. He was sitting out on a patio in front of this beautiful restaurant, uh, just feet from the race. We were right there on the curb and there was an outdoor patio set up. He had like three ta- uh, high top tables set up and we joined him and his family. I'm um, all Danvers people that I had known from growing up. And next thing you know, we were on. It was great. Uh, it, was, it was a beautiful day, you know. So the restaurant was set up awesome. So the, the, the wait staff would come out and they'd take care of you. We're enjoying some social, you know, adult beverages, grabbing some lunch. And the race just starts and the people start coming through. And you could just feel the energy on the street like we could so many other times. You know, you'd see armed, um, you know, servicemen and women coming through and, and the crowd goes nuts for them as they're coming through in full gear and, and uh, you know, people just getting super excited. The elite runners go through first. And then as you see the wheelchairs coming just ahead of them, and it's just, a, it's an awesome day. And, and that's what we were doing. So as we were sitting, you know, things were starting to approach later in the afternoon. It was probably 60 degrees. The sun was in and out. It was, it was one of my favorites. And my brother had called me. He was on his way in because this day was a little special too because the Boston Bruins were playing in the, uh, in the playoffs. Um, so they were dropping a puck at like 5, 6 o'clock that night. And he had made his way into a city with his wife who was a, a nurse at Mass General. And um, they had parked right over by the Boston Garden and they shot over to a bar called The Harp right across the street from, from, the, uh, from the venue. And he was trying to get directions to come see me at the Atlantic Fish Company. So I'm on the phone with my brother and I'm trying to just tell him where we are and how you get down here to see me. And um, sure as shit, the first explosion happens. And it's like to my left, it's about 200 yards from where we are. And I'm not sure, I could feel the concussion, but I wasn't sure what was going on. Uh, it kind of startled everybody around us. And I kept like the you phone could up. Hear it? Oh, you could hear it, you could feel it. And then I turned left and I could see like a plume of smoke coming up over Boylston Street. And here I am. It's like almost 10 minutes of three. Every elite runner is like home. They've already showered. They're feeling great. They're probably eating something. So there's no chance this is like a celebratory cannon. It's just way too late in the fucking day for that. There's no way, right? So we're, like my brain's kind of boggled. I'm trying to think of what's going on as I'm kind of analyzing and watching. And then 12 seconds later, the, the second explosion happens. And that was about 15 feet to my left. Um, so at the time, I didn't even think about it. I, I had an open mic, open line with my brother. I took the phone. And I just stuck it in the back pocket of my shorts that I was wearing. So now I have an open line with my brother who's a couple of miles away from me. And he's listening to this shit show just unfold. My brother's one of my, he's my best friend, right? So he's been my, my guardian. He's my guy. He's my dude. He's my go-to. And I can only imagine, we've talked a little bit, you know, obviously since about like what the emotions that evoked in him, where he is, listening to what his little brother's going through and his system are at the time. And like, just, he knows what we're doing. He knows where we are. So that was, you know, later on we had to unpack all that shit. But so I left the phone open, not knowing. I, I covered my wife and, and my buddy, Dan had, he had gone out to the rail um, to watch he had a friend from college who was out from the West Coast and she was running. Uh, he'd run a marathon with her in San Diego prior and she was coming down. So he had her bib number. So he was tracking her. We were tracking all our friends that were running that day. So Dan had made his way up to the rail to see her come. So he was kind of separated from the group a little bit. So Dan's girlfriend, which is now his wife, was sitting at the high top with us. So when the, when the shit hit the fan, like the smoke just 
it immediately like overtook us. It was a complete whiteout. The ringing in my ears was so fucking incredible. It was it was out of this world. Um, I'm just getting emotional just thinking about it. So like the the sulfur just overtakes every sense. It just eats up your mouth, your eyes, your nose. It's all you can taste. It's all you can sense. And the ringing in my ears was so 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 incredible. But I immediately just grabbed my my wife and and, and Dan's girlfriend, and uh, I just kind of covered them by the high top table we were at. And just kind of sheltered them. The, the glass from above us at the restaurant had let go from the windows because of the concussion from the explosion of the bomb that was right next to us. So keep in mind, I was on blood thinners, right? And I'm 15 feet from an explosion that eventually hurt a lot, a lot of people. So the only thing that kept me upright was I was standing at the Atlantic Fish Company. And to my left was a planter. It was about three feet high. It was basically cinder blocks that was encased in like a wooden structure that held like some small, beautiful, like little flowers for the spring. And it separated me from the forum restaurant, which was directly to my left, if we're looking up close to the finish line. On the other side of that planter, the carnage was indescribable. It was people over there that were legless. Everybody had gotten hurt. So the most of the carnage that had taken place was directly to my left. And the only reason why I'm still here today, especially on blood thinners, is because that planter just took the, the, the blast from me. Um, if I shaved my head when I was on blood thinners or I, I, I clicked myself on the face, I would bleed for two or three hours. I'd have to use special medication to make it stop. If I got nicked that day, there's not a chance I would still be here, especially with the carnage that was going on on the other side. So about 10 seconds after the blast, you could start to see a little bit and see what was going on. I, um, I, I scooted the two girls that I was with into an alcove between the two restaurants. It was like a small area probably three by three with the, the, the water main and some of the services from the, uh, the facilities going into the building were, it was just a small encapsulated area. I just wanted to get us away from the, just the madness to just to kind of assess what was going on. I had had previous, um, training and just, you know, first aid, but nothing, nothing substantial. Um, but I, for the very first time in my life, I thought I was going to die. I remember that, that motion. I didn't know when the third or the fourth explosion was coming. Um, it was just, it was a really, really difficult moment. So I got us in there, really, really concerned for our safety. And uh, we were standing next to like a, the plate glass windows that, that kind of opened up the front of the Atlantic Fish Company. They were recording doors that kind of opened up for the nice weather. They had closed them about an hour before the bomb exploded, uh, which was good for everybody inside. But that provided shelter for everybody. And I could kind of see through the window when I peered in, I could see people kind of congregating inside the main lobby. So I said to the girls, we're going to move. And I, I, I picked them up. And I started to scoot them across the front of the patio that we were once standing on and then get them back into the restaurant. And as I was going, I was trying to assess everything on my left that was going on at the, at the race. And that was when I had my first glimpse of this, the atrocity that had taken place out there in the street. I mean, we were standing in front of a restaurant that served 50 and $60 steaks, right? So it's like all of a sudden, in a blink of an eye, I'm in the middle of a third world country and this place is a fucking shitstorm. It looked like people just had their pockets turned inside out. There was fucking shit everywhere. There was baby carriages with no kids in them. There was wallets. There was money on fire. I saw all kinds of heinous shit. And I get the two women inside and I immediately, I don't know why, I did a 180 degree turn and I just, I didn't even say anything to the girls. I just left them. And that was something that me and my wife at the time had to work through a little bit. She was hurt. She was upset that I left her in the middle of a chaotic mess. In my brain, I just knew that everybody needed help. She was okay, and I knew how much of a mess it was out on Boylston Street. Um, so when I spun, I don't remember this, but apparently I took the phone back out of my pocket and I put it to my ear and I said to my brother, there's, there's children that are hurt. Get out of the fucking city. And um, I hung up. What I had seen at that point was there was, was, a kid, there was some, some children that were hurt. I saw one girl that was laying in the middle of Boylston Street. As I started to make my way to her, the first victim that I came into contact with was a, an adult probably between like late 40s, mid to late 40s. He looked like his clothes had been blown completely off. He was like his clothes were shredded. He was bleeding a little bit. His jeans were frayed, but he was mobile. He was conscious. He was alert. He was making his way towards me. So I kind of gathered him up and spun him around and kind of assisted him to the front door of the Atlantic Fish Company where... The staff there that were waiting on us earlier turned into like triage specialists. These people were freaking amazing. They were like welcoming people in at a, at a, a lot, like just waving everybody inside. They're trying to help everybody they could. They were using linens or anything they could to stop bleeding or help anybody. So because he was move him, he was like moving, he was able. Um, I just left him with them and I made my way into the street. At this point in time, I, I, I hurdled the first barrier that I saw that was on the ground and I made my way out in the middle of Boylston Street. And that's where I found a little girl. She was six years old and she had lost her leg from just below her knee down. Such a traumatic injury to see somebody at that age. Now, at the time, my daughter, I have one daughter. She's 14. She was four at the time. 
so I could just see this little girl and, you know, I could see my daughter and her. She was conscious. Um, she was alert and able to communicate a little bit. The, the concussion from, from the bomb, I ended up losing 80% of the hearing in my left ear. My right ear was covered because I was on the phone. So my left ear took, took the brunt of it. So in that moment with a ruptured eardrum and, and just trying to communicate the best we could, it was really, really difficult to talk here and then comprehend what people were saying to each other. And when I got to her, there was a, a gentleman who had come out of Abe and Louie's, which is the restaurant on the other side of Atlantic Fish Company. He was an off-duty Lynn firefighter from Massachusetts. And uh, he'd come out of the second floor and just looking to help. He'd been in the military, served a couple of tours in Afghanistan. So if you want to be paired up with anybody, that's your guy, right? So I was very fortunate to, to meet that, that superhero. And when I got to him, he was sitting with her and he just looked at me and said, we need to do something or she's not going to make it. I need a tourniquet. Do you have a belt? And I immediately took my belt off and I wrapped it around her leg. I scooted up as close as I could to the groin to kind of control some of the bleeding um, and what was going on. At that time, her father had approached us and he was with his eldest son who was 12. And um, I just kept saying to him, I'm like, cover his eyes, cover his eyes. He doesn't need to see this as I'm trying to triage and, and work his daughter. And the, the, the man I was with, Matt's like, we, we need to move her. She's, she's, she's not going to make it. We got to go. We got to go. The problem was that they were stopping the ambulances and all the emergency personnel, uh, probably about 100, 150 yards up the street. I think they were concerned about third, fourth explosions, the same concerns that I had as an individual who was in the street. Um, so they didn't want to run them right into the fray and then have something else happen. So we could see them kind of posting up down by the Prudential Center. And we made the determination we were going to move her. So I said to the father, I said, you know, sir, I need you to follow us and we're going to get to the ambulance. So through hand gestures and everything else we could do to communicate, he understood what we were doing. So Matt said, I'm going to pick her up. I need you to support her leg and don't let go of that tourniquet. So I squeezed it as tight as I could and I picked her and we, we scooped her and we plucked her. We started to run um, and we made our way up to the ambulance. And that's where I found my first EMT. And I said, you need to take her. And I passed her off and, and don't let go of this fucking tourniquet, basically. And you need to, you know, and he understood what we were talking about. And we, uh, we swapped out. And I said to her father, I said, send your son with me and then you stay with her and then we'll swap back out. So I took, her son, I took the oldest son across the street and I set him down on the curb. And I just started to check him for injuries and kind of try to calm him down. He had a thousand questions about his sister. He was really obviously shook from the event. He'd been in a similar proximity that we were, but appeared to be unharmed. Um, so I started his neck and I started to work my way down his body. And um, when I got to his leg, he started to wince a little bit and, and I could recognize that he was in pain. So I rolled up his jeans on his, on his left side and um, it looked like he had got shot with a BB gun, like one pump, like in the leg, like six or eight times. It was like these perfect little circles of bruising that had started. Nothing had broken the skin, which was amazing considering the, you know, the, the fate that his sister was in. Um, and I assumed that they were standing together, but like it was clear to me that this was an explosion. This was a bullet or a pebble I'm, or a BB, I'm sorry, that was like, it was, it was intended to cause harm. That's all I could think about in that moment. And as I worked with him to make sure that he was okay and check him over, I could hear a, an, a, you know, a, a commotion going on on Boylston Street. And I turned and there was a cop who was approaching us and he was coming at like full rate of speed and he was reaching for his gun and he was yelling. I didn't know what he was doing. But what I didn't realize is as I had the young boy on the curb, there was a gentleman standing over us with a cell phone who was recording the whole interaction I was having with the kid. And that kind of put things in perspective for me in terms of there's a lot of people there that weren't there to help. People in those situations, we see it a lot. We see it everywhere. You see it on YouTube. A lot of the videos we have, a lot of these things, people, their first inclination is to, to videotape. Right. And, they uh, want to get that glimpse, their 15 minutes of fame. And you yeah. don't think of that person as a human. They're like right. literally going through something. Yeah. So it was, that was an interesting dynamic for me in that moment as well. And um, it was something that, you know, I just kind of had to get through in that moment. So the cop, Bocked at him. He ended up leaving and running in the opposite direction. The officer asked me if I was okay. I told him that I, were, I was, and he was off. I've never seen that gentleman ever again. The father came back and was reunited with me. Um, and what he had said was, he just kept saying, my son, my son. And he was pointing back towards the epicenter of the blast. So at that point, I had, uh, I had left the two of them and I, and I ran back to, to the beginning of where we started. That's where I found his son, unbeknownst to me, but I, it, it made sense once I got there. And that was Martin Richard, and he was eight years old, and he was the youngest victim in terms of uh, a fatality that day. And we, we did everything we could in that moment to help him, but the injuries that sustained in, in, in the bombing were just too significant for his little body. And that was the first time I had, I had seen a dead person or a dead, a dead body in my life. Um, it was really, really obviously a difficult moment, something I'll never forget. And what I didn't realize was until weeks later is when I got back there and we were doing everything we could to, to, to help, 
the other gentleman that I was with that was working with me was uh, was Matt, the kid that had helped me carry the little girl up to the ambulance. So when I went over and sat with the other son to help him out, Matt had gone straight back to the epicenter as the blast, which doesn't surprise me now, knowing Matt. And uh, by the time I got back there, he was next to me. And then we were later, you know, reunited through some things and, and we got to talking and it all made sense. So I stayed on scene for about 30 minutes, probably. I found my friend Dan, which was pretty incredible, um, who had gotten, dis- you know, displaced from us during the initial blast. Um, Dan was by Martin by the time I got back. And when I got there, Dan had removed his shirt and he was trying to help Martin's mom who had sustained a pretty significant eye injury. So she was using Dan's shirt to kind of control some of the bleeding that was going on with her. So I was reunited with Dan. We worked with the emergency first responders who were showing up at that point to move backwards and try to remove some of those barriers to get to the people that had lost limbs and try to help support anybody on the scene that were there. And it was just a wild, crazy experience when, like I said, I, I had taken that trip to Boston so many times and I woke up that morning so excited for my favorite day of the year. And these two pieces of shit decided they were going to come down and drop a couple bombs to try to hurt and maim and kill as many people as possible. And as I was in there doing those kind of things, it was just, it was all like starting to settle in, you know, because now the, the adrenaline's starting to wear off a little bit and you're starting to figure out what the fuck is actually going on here. And you're looking around and things are starting to slow down. The tunnel vision is now starting to to, to, to ramp out a little bit and you're getting a full perspective on, on, on the shit show that you're in. And it was it was pretty immense. Uh, it was clearly my worst day of my life. So a couple minutes later, me and Dan decided we were going to go. We talked to police officers. We gave our information and it was time for us to move on. There was plenty of help there at that point. And uh, we needed to go re- reunited with our families. So we were able to do that a couple blocks away. The cell phones had been shut off, basically. They they used cell phones to, to detonate the bombs. I'm, not, I'm still unclear whether or not BPD shut it down or, or the, you know, whoever was there shut the cell phone service down. If it was just because of the influx of people trying to get on um, you know, cell service. But at whatever stake, we couldn't use our cell phones. So we just happened to bump into our families a couple blocks away from Atlantic Fish, which was just by chance. Another crazy part of that story was we were coming at a four-way intersection and me and Dan were on foot. My ex-wife and his, his wife were walking in another direction. My, uh, my ex-sister-in-law was with them and they were all kind of coming in. And we saw their cousin who we didn't even know was at the marathon. And we all kind of met at a four-corner intersection. And we're standing underneath a bakery or a market. It's called DeLuca's Market. And that happens to be my ex-wife's maiden name. So we met a, a DeLuca cousin. I found two DeLucas and we're all standing on the DeLuca's market. It was just one of those weird things. And, and there was a lot of weird stuff that came out of this, but that was just one of those moments where like, how the fuck did we meet here underneath this sign? But here we are. So we had to make our way a couple rows back, uh, blocks back away from uh, Boylston Street towards um, Starrow Drive, which is a main like throughway in Boston. And we get back to Starrow and we're just following the, the, the flow of people. Me and Dan are both like covered in somebody else's blood. We look like zombies walking through the streets. People are looking at us like we're fucking crazy. We were just trying to get out of there and just get back. I didn't. I just wanted to get away from the fray. Unbeknownst to me, my brother had moved their vehicle out of the parking garage where they were and pulled up to Mass General, which is you know it's a pretty good distance still as a walk from um, the Atlantic Fish Company where we were. But Brad got out of his car, left his wife, and just started running against the sea of people like a salmon. And sure as shit, he found me in the streets of Boston, walking amongst thousands of people that are trying to exit. He's coming the wrong way. And he just gives me this huge embrace. He found me in the middle of the street and scooped me up. And he's like, let's go. We get the car ready. We got to get out of here. It was like out of a movie. You couldn't make that shit up. I was you know? just going to say, that sounds like a yeah. movie. It really, truly does. You know, and I, it was- it Slow was, motion, the music <laughs> plays. And- Unbelievable. Like, how the fuck did he find me? Like, how did we cross paths in that sea? Like, it was just amazing. So he scooped us up. We went back and- we went back to Salem, Mass. Um, there's a hospital there closer to home, trying to get out of the city again with that idea. Um, I got evaluated there and determined that my year was a mess. And, and that's, I'm so fortunate. Like, I'm so, so fortunate uh, that I was standing in the right place. He puts that bag down four feet in one direction or the other, um, and that plant is not there. I'll be the first victim without a doubt. I would have bled out instantly. So I, I clearly think that there was something else that placed me there that day, literally in that physical, that exact fucking spot. If I was a police officer already, I would never would have been there. I wouldn't be able to give my belt to that young girl. I wouldn't be able to be there with Martin. I wouldn't be able to help the other people that I helped that day. This is something that I think I've been destined to do since I was born. I've always wanted to be a police officer. I've always wanted to be a helper. I think my years at the school provided me an opportunity to learn how to help people in a different way that I didn't even know I was capable of with a population of kids that I had never worked with. I thought it was an awesome opportunity to work with some really, really difficult kids that don't really have a place in this world. Uh, they don't have a lot of people in their corner. They don't have too many trusted adults. I still stay in touch with a lot of the kids that I helped uh, for many years in that capacity. 
So if I if I'd gone on when I wanted to get on, I, I never would have been standing there on Boylston Street that day. So people are like you know, wrong place, wrong time. I think it was the right place, right time. To be honest with you, I'm very very fortunate that I was standing exactly where I was, um, and not two feet or three feet or or any place else because uh, my fate could be totally different. So I'm still trying to figure out my place in the world of God, but I, I definitely believe that um, everything happens for a reason. And uh, I wasn't a cop at the right time. What I fought was the wrong time. But it all came to fruition, and I think it's all worked out. Hello, everyone. My name is Gregory Zink, and I'd like to welcome you to my political true crime podcast called Smoke-Filled Rooms. With my background in political science, I present deep-dive storytelling shows that focus on history's most infamous governments, leaders, parties, policies, and discontents. For at the core of society's dysfunctions are the criminal powers that lord over us and the attempts by competing interests to strike back at the system. So grab a couple cigars and meet me behind the Capitol building for bi-weekly episodes featuring the political realm's most diabolical. The Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast is a member of the Darkcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to visit smokefilledrooms.net to sign up for my mailing list. Listener discretion is advised for topics including violence, coarse language, substance use, sex, and disturbing situations. We'll see you soon. In the weeks, months, years after the marathon, I, I went back to my hematologist at Mass General and I fought with him. I said, Doc, listen, I, I, I got to come off this med. I, I got to be a police officer. So through therapy and other things, like one of the things they'll tell you is, you know, they don't want you to get totally immersed in everything. They want you to like give yourself a break, give your brain a break. You need to relax. I was the total opposite. I was an asshole. I just wanted to read every article. I wanted to watch every video. Give me everything you got, right? I, I needed to know. I watched that manhunt like a lot of people did across the I couldn't get my ass off the sofa. I wanted to see everything. I wanted to find those two fucking pricks. I wanted to make sure they were taken care of. Fuck them. Like I was in, like in, in, in. And in doing that, late nights, not sleeping, not eating, not taking care of myself because that's what trauma does to you. I was, you know, three, four, five, six in the morning. I'm, I'm watching videos on YouTube. I'm watching every cell phone, even that prick. I was trying to find the one of the guy that was above me. I was trying to find and look and see and do everything that was related to the Boston Marathon. I read every article that says I was a crisis actor or I did this or like all this bullshit. I read it all. And in doing that, there was a YouTube video that showed that there was a cop kneeling next to Jane, the little girl that I helped. And he was there prior to me getting there. And I, I have no ill will feeling towards that gentleman. I have no idea it was more critical that day than a six-year-old with a missing leg. But by the time I got there, I can promise you there was no officer there. So I don't know where he went. And I still don't know. And I don't care. But I'll tell you what, that lit a fire under my ass to be like, you know what, if that guy's going to be there and go someplace else, then the world needs better cops. So I fought with my doctors. And I said, fuck this. I'm going. Like, you can't tell me no. So I did. And um, it took me about six, seven, eight doctors before I found somebody that agreed with me. And, and we made it work. And... I found a hematologist and a cardiologist out of Salem who put me basically on like a Zoom before Zoom was even a thing. And I was like a conference call with a bunch of doctors from across the country. And they all came together and they said, listen, you're a young enough guy. Blood thinners is basically a rat poison. He's like, we don't need you on rat poison the rest of your life. Be aware of your physical ailments. If you get like a, a pain in your calf or this is what we can do, we can find warning signs. If you're a healthy guy. We can't, I took every blood panel and did everything I could. They couldn't give me any risk factors. He's like, let's come off the med. That's what I did. And, uh, I called the police station immediately and I was still sitting on a list as a hireable person. And I said, I'm ready. So whenever you're ready, let's do it. And um, there was a new chief coming on and he called me and he's like, my first order of business is to make sure you're going to be a police officer in Davis. Congratulations. And it worked. And um, so I've been a cop since. I got on in 2016, marathon. Yeah. So it was like three years after the marathon. It took me a little bit to get there, uh, but I didn't give up. You know, I wasn't going to let somebody tell me no. And I, I had for a long time, you know, it was many years where somebody was like, yeah, you just can't do it. And I accepted that. And I was fortunate that I had an amazing job. I was loving what I was doing and working with some amazing people and some amazing kids. But I, I, found, I found my true calling. So I, I landed at Davis Police Department, the, the department where I grew up in basically with my dad was there for 30 something years. Um, and so I got sworn in in 2016. My dad was actually at my swearing in and pinned pin me, put the badge on me. And I'd been there and now it's been about seven, going on eight years. Um, and about five years ago, I had the best opportunity in the world to become a school resource officer. So, uh, like to talk about the best of both worlds, right? So with 15 years experience working in special ed with, with some crazy kids, uh, an opportunity opened up at an agricultural and technical school. It's a 1700 kids school. There's about 2000 people on campus every day. Um, so I'm the cop in the building. I get a lot of kids to look after, a lot of staff to look after and make sure everybody's safe. It's a, it's a good job. It's challenging in so many ways, but 
I mean, I, I couldn't have been prepped for it better um, in my, my education experience in the classroom. And, you know, at the school, I moved into an administrative role where I was doing the suspensions, detentions, uh, expulsions and all that stuff. So I was dealing with kids on, on a lot of different levels. So I've, I found myself in like the, the most beautiful role ever, uh, working as a school as a cop and I'm back coaching high school soccer. Uh, so I'm very blessed. I'm very, very blessed. And this experience has taught me a lot. And uh, I'm very fortunate uh, to still be here. But I'm fortunate to be here to be able to give back. And uh, that's my goal every day is to, to, to give a little bit of me back to everybody that I meet. So that's the goal. I love this story. I mean, we could do without the bombing. But other <laughs> than that, you know, just the yeah. fact that I do, I'm a huge, strong believer in everything happens for a reason. Absolutely. You might not know what it is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you might find out years later. Sometimes you'll never know. Right. But everything happens for a reason. And I think you're put where you are because you're going to help some kids in ways that you didn't even know while you're at that school. Yeah. I'm fortunate. I'm very fortunate to be there. Yeah. Um, So my daughter's a freshman year this year. So I said, are you you sure you want to go to school (laughs) where your dad's a cop? And, um, she's funny. She's like, well, dad, the kids like you. So it'd be different if you were like the asshole cop, you know? Um, (laughs) so, so she's doing great. She's just, you know, just started her freshman year and, um, She's, she's doing amazing. My nephew's up there as well. And the funny story is my brother is, he's a, an arborist by trade. So he, he'd worked in the tree industry for a very long time and is a licensed arborist and uh, ran a couple of different shops. Then he got a job working as a general manager for a large scale property, uh, property management company. He had a really good job doing a lot of good things and managing a lot of big people. And um, about 90% of their revenue for their company was snow removal. And up in Boston, that's a, it's a, big, it's a big thing up here. And um, so he was, he's been working there for many years and that came with a toll. Like, so he couldn't travel during the winter. You never know when the snowstorm is going to come. He'd be home for a little bit. Next thing you know, like, oh, we get snow coming in three days. So he would be off 15, 18, 20 hour days getting ready for the storm. And then you'd have to put four or 500 people together to make sure they can remove all the snow. They'd be there throughout the storm. So he'd be like, you know, two weeks in every storm. He was, it was killing him. So I said to him, I go, Hey, listen, there's more to life as he's the cop talking, right? About work-life balance. Cops are the worst at it. And uh, I said, there's, there's, there's more to life than just fucking working. You know, let's, let's find some balance. And at the school that I work at, it's an agricultural and technical high school. We got about 26 different shops and one of them is arboriculture. I said, come work at the school, dude. You can be a teacher. You can have your summers off. And every time it snows, you get to stay home. What's fucking better than that? Like, come, come hang out, you know, come impact some kids, make a difference in kids' lives and make it work. And he's like, you don't understand the pay cut that's going to take. And I said, listen, you know, your wife's got a great job. She's a nurse practitioner. You're going to do okay. And they figured it out. Financially, they worked it out. And it was about that life-work balance. And he took a risk. And two years ago, he joined us at the school. He is uh, one of the most influential people on campus there right now. The kids absolutely love him. We do a thing every year now that I spearhead. It's kind of like our trusted adult list. So we go ahead and we we ask every one of our 1,700 students, who is your trusted adult at home and at campus? And um, if somebody doesn't have a trusted adult on campus, we make sure we meet with each one of those kids individually. And uh, we try to, that's where we got to do the work, right? And develop those relationships and, and make sure that they have somebody in their corner so they feel comfortable, whether it's something about themselves or somebody else. Like if you're worried about somebody else who's going through something, whether it's a divorce or a breakup or they got cut from a sports team, it could be anything from suicidal ideation or, or self-injury. It could be anything, big or small. We want to make sure the kids on campus have somebody. And I'll tell you what, my brother's the leading staff member right now at that building for kids that trust him and come to him first, right? And that's super important. So I know that he's doing, he's doing some amazing work up there. Even if, um, you know, they had to adjust their lifestyle a little bit, it's perfect. He loves it. It's, it's amazing. And it's provided him opportunity to have more time with his family and his kids. And he's, he's, he's now figured out what I did for the first 15 years of my life, how amazing that schedule can be too for all those reasons. And uh, so I'm blessed to go to work every day with my brother and see him on campus. Um, and his son now is also a freshman. So my nephew and my daughter are both there every day with us, which is, uh, which is a blessing as well. So yeah, I'm pretty lucky. I love that you guys do that. We need yeah. more of that in schools because these kids go home and you don't know what happens to them when they go home. Yeah. Are they hungry? Are they getting abused? Do they even right. have a home? You know, like you just don't know. And mm-hmm. you have to have resources out there for children so you can rewire the brain and you know hurt people hurt people so the less hurt people we got walking around right. out there the better for all of us <laughs> right yeah we're very we're very aware that like some of the six or seven best hours of these kids days are when they're with us you know um in our building we know they're getting fed they're getting taken care of uh and and that's super important in all the work that i do is to make sure that those kids the kids that are slipping through the cracks so if you want to talk about school safety and school violence 
those are primarily the kids that are, that are causing the trouble in our campuses are the kids that don't have connections with the adults in the building. And I, I just don't know why people don't do that work. Yeah. Does it take a lot on our end as far as energy and effort to make sure we connect with each and every one of those kids? You're damn right. It does. That's it's not an easy task to, to get 1700 kids information and then sift through and find out who does and then set up appointments to go. Yeah. It's a big undertaking. I've had other districts with six or 700 kids in their building. Tell me I'm fucking crazy for what we do. Well, the, how much work that is. I go, yeah, we do it every day. Like, but if I'm not doing that, what are we doing? What are we doing for kids? And and that's what I'm passionate about is making sure that everybody's taken care of and everybody's good, you know? And um, we started a thing uh, five years ago on campus. It's called Kindness Week. Um, and it was kind of an idea I came up with on a whim in a, in a, in a meeting. And f- part of the five-year strategic plan from the superintendent was to positively impact school culture and what can we do? And I was like, uh, I got an idea. Maybe. We'll see. And I, I, pitched, <laughs> an, I pitched an idea to celebrate Kindness Week the week leading up to the Boston Marathon and our April vacation because we're off that whole entire week of the vacation every year. It's celebrated on Patriots Day. It's right there at the first Monday of our school vacation every year. So now at Essex Tech, the school I work at, we, the, the week prior, uh, we give the kids about 40, 50 different ways to give back, uh, whether it's to the community or to, the, you know, to just our school community or the, the larger community. Um, during COVID, we we, we piped in and, and, and zoomed into other classrooms um, across the country. We tried to read one story of kindness to one classroom in all 50 states. Um, so we show up on a Zoom call with us stupid accents in like Arkansas. They can hardly understand us. So we got to get a translator to help us. But uh, we did it. And so we're like, just giving different ways to give out and spread kindness, to just reminding people like to pay it forward. So now in Boston, we celebrate one Boston Day, which is every year on April 15th from this year for every day forward. And it's about giving back and doing something for somebody else in the spirit of what happened. And when I tell you like, so now I, I kind of travel and I talk about it, my experience, but it's all under the lens of kindness and it's about doing something for somebody else. That's what Boston Marathon's about. Like I said, when we first started talking, it's all about raising awareness, giving back and doing something for somebody else. It's not about a personal best when you sit down at that finish line, you see many, many, many people who are struggling, right? 26.2 miles is no small feat. It's not a little jog in the park. And these people's bodies are given away at the finish line. They're, they're, they're hundreds of yards from the end and their bodies are physically giving up. They just can't do it, cramping or whatever it might be. So people are stopping while they're running and they go ahead and pick up a stranger and physically, literally carry them, one or two of them, across the finish line. Because it's not about a personal best. It's not about a time score or whatever it might be. It's about making sure that you guys all finish the goal, right? With that understanding of taking care of everybody. It's community. It's all of that. And that's all embraced in one Boston day. And that's something we brought to campus um, to make sure that all our kids understand that. So I get in front of the freshmen every year and I give them like a 60, 70 minute presentation on everything we just did here. I explain to them my experience and why, what we're going to do the next week. I explain to them all the things that are, that are in tail. Um, and we typically bring in a guest speaker, uh, somebody from across the country that's got an experience or whatever it might be, but somebody that's saying, just bring in a positive message uh, that can impact our kids and, and change their lives for the better. Um, and like I said, we set up a bunch of different opportunities. This year we're working um, to give away a car. So we're going to set up an opportunity after Christmas um, for kids that get caught doing something good on campus. Um, so a certain amount of you know tokens or appreciative things will be handed out to kids that are doing something well for somebody else. And um, those kids will be put into a raffle. We'll pull the car around onto the, onto the turf at the stadium. 25 kids will get keys. They'll go out and they'll start the vehicle and one kid's going to walk away with a vehicle. Um, so it's, it started from a stupid idea in a meeting of like, well, maybe this is something we could work on. And to this year, like we're, we're literally trying to give away a car. So it's growing. And I want to bring this to other campuses and get other schools involved. And it doesn't have to be based around the marathon. It doesn't have to be based around a tragic event. But who doesn't need more kindness in their world? Who doesn't need a little smile here or there? I just asked my kids like for a week, can you just calm down on social media? Just give everybody a break. Like you see somebody post something, hit them with a like and tell them that you love it. Like that's what we need. Just 90% of the bullshit that comes across my desk is when kids aren't taking care of each other. And that's what we need more. Oh, yeah. So yeah. So it's just, it's just building off of that and, and giving people an opportunity to, to say thanks, to give back and, and just, just push kindness. And that's what it's all about. I love it. Love yeah. it. Love it. We need more of that these days. We really do. Absolutely. God, we're going down the damn toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Not everywhere. No. So, and I hear that. I, I, listen, listen, I hear that. I truly do. I think there's a lot of good out there. And it's funny. So like, you know, you look at the world that we're living in right now. I was at, I was at a, a bagel shop like two weeks ago and I'm coming through the drive-thru and I go to give the woman my ATM card. And she's like, sir, the, the, the woman behind you already, already paid for your food. And I was like, so I was at a Mark Cruiser. I was at work. And uh, 
Some, during COVID, I didn't pay for a coffee ever. Everybody in front of me would always pay for my coffee. When a time when everyone hated the cops, people were very, very like caring and giving. So here I am, and there's a woman behind me. I've never had anybody behind me pay, but she had told the lady when she was at the speaker that she was going to pay for my food and drink. So I pulled over to the side, and she pulled up next to me. I put my window down, and she was a young girl in her early 20s. I said, good morning. I said, that was like a really kind gesture. I really appreciate that. You just made my morning, and I'll make sure that I pay it forward. And she said, sir, I just, I just want to let you know I'm going through a really difficult time. And I said, I'm sorry. What's going on? She's like, my name's Sarah. She's like, uh, I grew up in the Middle East. I'm, I'm from Palestine. And right now, like, my whole world is under siege. She's like, there's just there's a lot going on, and it's really difficult. She's like, everyone's at war, and, and, and people are looking at us differently. And she's like, it's just a really difficult time in the world right now. And I've made it a, a, a quest of mine that I, at least twice a week I try to do something good for somebody else. So this is one of my gestures. I said, well, Sarah, you just bumped into a cop who travels the country and talks about the, impo- the impactfulness of kindness and the power of kindness. I said, and you just changed my day completely. And I'm going to tell your story as many times as I can because I truly appreciate it. And like, it's like little things like that can change the day of anybody, right? Even if it's like holding the door for somebody or just smiling to a stranger as you pass them in the hall. It doesn't have to be anything monumental. It doesn't have to be six bucks for a coffee and a bagel. It doesn't have to be monetary. And that's what I tr- the message I try to give to kids as I, I travel and talk a little bit. And I, I'm really appreciative of her and her message that day. She's been feeling it. And I think a lot of people are feeling it. Like you said, we, you turn on the news, you can find as much shit as you want about this world, whether it's political or just anything. You know, I was watching the news before we jumped on here. And there's a lot of terrible shit going on in this world. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of powerful stuff going on in this world. And it's all about perspective too. Like if you want to sit down and, and break down the events of the Boston Marathon, the fucking mess that I watched and witnessed and lived through, was a, it was a disaster. But I'll tell you what, I'll spend three days telling you about the amazing people that finished 26.2 miles and literally did a 180 and ran back in to the fray. The, med, you know, the emergency workers, the nurses, the doctors that were volunteering their time at the tents at the end of the race that ran into the shit show, that just kind of gave up anything. No one thought about it. People jumping barricades, everything. Like I told you about the, the amazing staff at Atlantic Fish who were welcoming people into their restaurant and helping supporting and triaging injuries. It was amazing. The kindness was everywhere and it totally superseded any evil those two fucking assholes tried to bring into our world that day. And they picked the wrong city, I'll be honest with you. Um, this Boston's full of gritty, you know, tough nose, bad motherfuckers, I'll be honest with you. And it showed that day. People, you know... Considering the damage that was done that day and, and all the all the uh, turmoil that they brought, unfortunately, we we did lose some lives. But with a couple hundred injured and as many people as that lost their legs and, and, and were you know um, amputees as a result, uh, it speaks volumes about the people that were there trying to help. And I saw it, I witnessed it, and uh, it w- it was amazing. So yeah, the world's a fucked up place. I'm not going to disagree with that for one second. But there's a lot of good that's going on around there, and I think it's our job as a society to highlight those things, find people like Sarah at the, at the coffee shop who's looking out for her local police department um, and just say, thank you. And, and let's, let's highlight that shit and let's turn off the, turn off the news for a little bit. And let's bring some more power of positivity to this world, you know? Oh, hell yeah. No, yeah. like I might watch the weather and then I'm like, <laughs> it's gotta go. <laughs> right, no, it's hard. And I, listen, I get caught in it too. I, like I told you, I, I watched it like endlessly and it's easy to do. And obviously those are important things. I'm not, I'm not, you know, blind to public, you know, and, and to, to current events, but I know there's a lot of good stuff going on out there as well. Did that little girl make it? Do you know? She did. Yeah, she did. So she's had probably close to 30 surgeries at this point. Um, yeah. So Jane is now 16 years old. She's doing good. So she's awesome. So she, she walks with a blade or in, in a, a prosthetic leg. So a funny story. I had met with the family afterwards. A year later, my buddy Dan and my ex-wife ran the marathon. So they ran for Martin Richards Charitable Foundation, which was set up, which is um, MR8 Foundation, the Martin Richards Charitable Foundation. So they, they set up a, a marathon team in so we put together a fundraiser where we raised about $80,000 $80, for the family and for the foundation. And in doing so, you know, we went to a bib pickup and like a, a party for the team of everybody that ran for MR8. And it was over in Dorchester in the city. And we had reached out and I had talked to, you know, their dad one time and we were coming in and it was kind of one of those, not a reunion of sorts, but we, I also want to be very respectful of what that family went through that day. So we were going there for the first time to kind of cross paths with everybody I'm getting ready to open the door at the restaurant that it was at. It was a small little Italian joint. It's the glass door. And I go to reach for the door and the door almost hits me and I kind of get taken back and the door swings open and this little kid comes bombing out the door. It's her. And she's followed like four kids in tow and she's running down the street like a lunatic, like a 
seven-year-old kid should be. And she's got her little running blade on and she's just motoring down the street. We all just stopped first in the tears, right? Like, oh my goodness. Like, how is this talking about timing of shit, right? How does that happen? I haven't seen this little kid since the day. We're about a year out, probably 11 months. And she just goes, you know, blowing through the front door of this restaurant where we're going to see everybody. So kind of took the edge off the night. And um, I have spoke to her father that night. And uh, I've just respectfully said, I'm here for you and your family at any capacity you want. At some point, if Jane wants to meet me, that's on your terms. And uh, so hopefully one day we'll cross paths and um, we'll see. It's up to them. You know, so at this stage, we don't have like, a, I don't have a relationship with the family. But at some point, if Jane decides that she wants to meet me, uh, I'm sure she can find me in some way. And uh, yeah, so that was just a great experience. So they both ran the marathon the following year, did great. And uh, that was that. Yeah. Such an inspiring story. Yeah. And then she sang the, the national anthem at Fenway Park last year when they retired Dustin Pedroia's jersey at Fenway. And she knocked it out of the park. She can sing. And her older brother, um, Henry, uh, he's run the marathon a couple times now. And he had a group of, uh, of buddies with him from his, his, uh, his class that he graduated high school with that had grown up with him that all ran the race uh, last year uh, for the Charitable Foundation as well. So they're all just doing amazing things. That Charitable Foundation uh, raises money to, to give back to the community to support a bunch of things in the inner city uh, for kids that don't have. And so they've built uh, parks and other things. And, and some of it's for kids that are mobily impaired, you know. Um, and they've just done amazing work and, and done the best with the circumstances they had to give back and just to kind of, in, in Martin's memory and in his honor, uh, just do amazing things across the city of Boston. We need so much more of that. It's, yeah. I mean, kindness is free, people. Just do it. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I, every time I talk to an audience, I say that. I start with, I'm not going to teach you any crazy phenomenon that you've never heard of. I'm not that fucking smart, to be honest with you. So it's, it's, it's simple stuff. It just, we just need to bring it to the forefront of our minds a lot. And just be reminded, a simple reminder of it, like Sarah at the drive-thru. I was having a shit morning. I had a tough morning. I was just like, ugh, I'm like in my own place, in my own space. And then, holy shit, she just bought me breakfast. Let me find out who this kid is. And all of a sudden... She's a sweetheart who's going through a freaking really difficult time herself, but she's been able to like take that difficult time and then spin it into something positive and focus on the good. And I think that's what we all need a reminder of sometimes. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Did you have to do like any special therapy or anything before yeah. you became a cop? Especially? Yeah, so like, yeah. In the days and the weeks after it was, it was funny, right? So I worked at, a, like I told you, worked at an alternative high school, but it was a, a therapeutic school that had a strong therapeutic component. We had social workers. We had some really smart people there. So I was fortunate to be surrounded by clinicians um, in a trauma-sensitive school. A lot of our kids had dealt with their own stuff. So we had been trained up on a lot of those things. So a lot of the people that I worked with, including myself, I'd have been to a thousand hours of training um, on a lot of the things. But when it's yourself, sometimes you miss those, those cues, right? So I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't taking care of my basic needs. So I was off for that whole week because I had the vacation week. But I was adamant I was going back to work a week later. I'm like, I just got to get back into routine. I got to get back into my feet. I can't sit home and feel sorry for myself. What am I going to do? And people are like, no, you should stay home. I'm like, what, am I, what the fuck am I going to do at home? That's the worst place for me. I'm a people person too. So I'm like, let me get back to the building. So I did. I went back to school and I went back to work. And I might have rushed it a little bit. And like I said to you, I would get immersed in youtube videos or articles or whatever it may be and uh i was struggling i started to lose weight i lost about 15 pounds in three weeks it would be days would turn into nights and nights would turn into days and there would be two days in a row where i maybe slept for an hour and my mom being a nurse and and, and loving and caring about me and, and my ex-wife were you know you gotta you gotta figure it out but she was still dealing with her own trauma too she was there we had two totally different experiences the marathon i left her remember that part right so she was alone with other friends and family but her husband was out. She had no idea. I had run into the fray and she'd expected that of me, but that was hard for her to kind of process in her own way that I wasn't with her. She was watching from inside a restaurant and she was getting run out the back door and I was out in the middle of a mess. So like those were other bits and pieces that we had to work through too. So eventually I, I went and um, I, I sought out some therapy to kind of help me get back on track a little bit. It was probably like two or three weeks after the marathon is when I really started to dig in a little. The problem that I had is what like I've experienced with a lot of kids that I worked with was my first swing at the therapist was atrocious. I walked in. I'm like, oh, this ain't for me, bro. Like I'm out. I'm out. I'm fucking out. <laughs> so I went to work the next day and one of the therapists that I work with, one of the clinicians was like, how'd it go? And I'm like, that was fucking terrible. Like we're just, no, I'm done. And she's like, you can't be fucking done. What do you mean? You talk to kids every day and give them good advice to go work on, blah, 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 you know? And I did. I would tell kids all the time, like it's not going to work the first time, but don't get discouraged yeah, now it's your own turn. 
Don't get discouraged, asshole. Like, Mike, go go to therapy. So I'm like, all right, I'll do it again. I'll try. I went to six therapists before I found somebody that clicked. And I'm telling you, I had some really bad. It's like worse than a bad first date. It was really bad. And um, finally, I found somebody. And she was just like, listen, we're going to get you through this. And she introduced me to a thing called EMDR. And it deals with rapid, rapid eye movement. So it's basically like it's like the old day with the flip phone. She handed me like two like small, like it looked like small cell phone batteries. And she put them in my hands. And they would vibrate. And it was no like, it wasn't, there was no, you know, symphony to it. It was kind of like, it was just however it worked. Um, and there was no rhythm. And you just hold them. And she was like, I want you to tell me the entire story from beginning to end. If it takes us five hours, it takes us five hours. But I want you to start at the beginning and go. I'm like, okay. And meanwhile, my hands are vibrating and I'm just telling her the story. And that was the end of our first session. And she's like, when you come back, we're going to work through that again. And you're going to start at the very beginning and you're going to tell me the story all over again. And what you're going to do is every time we get to a point where you feel like a flutter in your chest, wherever your anxiety sits, mine sits like right on my diaphragm. She's like, I want you to stop. And then we're just going to, we're going to get at it a little bit. She's going to start asking me some questions and we're going to just break that down. And what is it about that? And we did that over the course of like eight or 10 sessions. Um, and we worked our way through the story in our blocks of time. So the first one was a big, long story. And then we started doing our, our sessions. And the first time I met with her, she said, when you book a schedule with me one session, I need you to book like three hours afterwards for yourself because you're going to be, you're going to be fucking exhausted. And I was like, I'm fine. That's okay. And I was, I would go home and just finally start to fall asleep. My body would be exhausted because I was doing the work. And, uh, about six, six sessions into like the 10, um, this is something else that she told me that would happen is I just found myself going to bed. And I, st- I slept six hours at a time and I was like, holy shit. I, I didn't see that coming at all. And it just, it just happened. And so I started to get better and started to get better and started to get better. And it, it saved me. There's no way I could have kept up what I was doing. I couldn't have kept on that path um, in terms of just, you know, my own physical well-being and never mind the mental aspect of it. But physically, I was, I was falling apart. I looked okay on the outside. People were like, oh, it's good to see you at work. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I experienced panic attacks and flashbacks. Um, I spoke to a lot of anxious kids for many years and gave great advice with I've had zero idea what the fuck they were going through until all of a sudden now I was somebody that had anxiety. I had, I had no experience. Um, so I did my best to kind of understand and put myself in their shoes and be empathic. But like I, I had no idea what a flashback looked like. And I had kids that had experienced sexual assaults as young kids or whatever it might have been. And they would have full-fledged panic attacks in my presence and I would try to work with them. And it kind of gave me a different perspective once I started experiencing those things on my own. And the marathon kind of brought some of that to me. So in that own right, it kind of allowed me to, to be a better educator as well and, and, and kind of understand victims from a standpoint now what I'm doing. I just finished up a, a week-long 40-hour course on sexual assault investigating and, um, you know, and, and getting involved in some of that stuff to, to give victims a voice and, and work with them um, in that capacity. So, I, you know, I think with the therapy component of it, uh, yeah, I just, I never would have been able to make it without it. It was so crucial in my healing. Um, I'm a huge advocate for it. Every time I speak to a group of students, I literally stop. I get a, a slide I put up there and I, I, I tell the girls no disrespect when I'm talking to the boys in the room because a society says to boys like it did to me when I was 15, 16, like, shut up, put your big boy pants on. We don't cry. You don't have emotion. You got to be, you know, be a man. And I cry all the time, right? And I do, and that's okay. And it's okay to be emotional. And I try to explain that to these kids. Like you need to be able to say to your trusted adult or somebody in the room, I need help because some of these things we can't figure out on our own. And every time I sit with a student and we discuss something difficult, I say, I don't have all the fucking answers either. Not even close. So if there's something that comes up through the course of a day or whether it's through an investigation or just a conversation with a kid, if I don't have those answers, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that we find somebody that can help us. Because in the world is way smarter than people than the two of us. So let's go make sure we find those people and, and get that shit solved. And and that's the truth. And that's the real shit. And it's I couldn't have done that stuff on my own. I you know I I needed the support of this eighth therapist that I found um, to help me get to where I needed to be. And I, it wasn't going to happen without their support. And I'm, I'm forever thankful, um, especially with the MDR. But just even the talk therapy after, we just kind of get through some of that shit. I've heard really good things about EMDR, like yeah. really good things that it does. It helps rewire your brain. It helps clear the blockages and it just helps you be able to become like you again. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's I think amazing. The, yeah, they, they explained it to me like a filing cabinet. So the flashbacks were so prevalent and it happened in like on a pretty regular basis. Not full-fledged like way back, but like it would be something that would come back and it would click. For example, the first time I went back to Boston, 
I was walking up Newbury Street on my way back to Boylston Street to where the, the blast had happened because they shut the city down. So we couldn't get in, right? As the manhunt had happened and the, the, shit, the city was a fucking mess. The day they opened it, I'm like, I'm going. I'm, I'm back. Like these two assholes aren't going to change my life. I'm going back to Boston. Fuck off. So we did. And it was really difficult, but I, I was going to like exposure therapy. I'm walking through this thing. No one's going to tell me no. So we're going up the street and sure as shit, a trash truck was dumping the, like picked up a, a dumpster and was like flipping it in the back. And the thing just made this loudest crash. And I was like, oh. You know, that was my oh, little, yeah, you know, little pucker moment. And I'm like, what, what the fuck? I'm like two blocks from where this whole thing happened. And it's the first time I'm hearing this. Um, so, but through MDR, what it does is it allows you to file some of those memories away. It doesn't take, it doesn't blast them out of your brain. It just allows you to, to manage them a little bit more and better. You're going to see them, but you're also going to be able to put them back in the memory bank, right? And, and, and put them back in their folder where they belong and organize those thoughts. Where before was so they would just flood and they would flood and I didn't have any control over it. And this has really helped me. Not that I'm saying I don't have any moments of vulnerability still to this day. Of course I do. I think there's going to be things that are going to stay with me forever. I saw some horrible, horrible things. But I'm far better equipped to handle those things and manage them on a day-to-day basis than I ever was prior to any of that stuff. Um, so I can't speak highly enough about getting support from somebody else. And I feel like I'm man enough to say, like everyone, you should be going to see somebody, right? We all get stuff we're dealing with. We truly do. We all have stuff we're dealing with. And, um, you know, it's... it's it's okay to say I need some help from somebody else. It's okay to be vulnerable. Um, and I wasn't initially. I was like, oh, I got this. But, you know, enough good people in my life kicked me in the ass to say, hey, let's go, let's go figure this out. And I'm, I'm thankful I did. 100%. Like, yeah. you have to. You just have to. And it's another thing I like to say on my podcast. Okay, so you go and talk to someone, they suck, see you another one. Absolutely. You know, don't yeah. give up because no. you will find that person that you mesh with. Couldn't agree more. And uh, yeah, it's, it said it was like a first date. It was like one of those things where if it's not a fit, you also have to be comfortable to say, this isn't working. And I talk to students about that all the time. I'm like, so you're going to therapy. They're like, yeah, court mandated it. Well, how's it going? Oh, it sucks. Why? They're like, I don't fucking tell that person anything. I'm like, well, bro, like, what are we fucking doing? Like pump the brakes. If we can go spend an hour with some asshole, like let's go make sure that asshole is at least a decent person. Start there, right? If they're going to make you go, mom, dad, whoever, court, doesn't matter. Let's go get something out of it. Let's go. Let's go find something that works. Um, so hopefully that resonates with kids as we talk. Because yeah, I, I think especially with juveniles that have to go or even adults, like if, it's not the connection. If you're going there and not being a hundred percent honest, open, truthful, there's no point putting the, putting the work in. Like what are we wasting our time for? And you, I know people that are doing it, and um, it just doesn't make any sense, you know. So I hope that people will understand that a little bit. And it was it was hard for me. It clearly was right. And I just but I was put in a position where I wasn't going to be able to function on a day-to-day level unless I figured that shit out. So uh, I'm pretty fortunate that I finally got there. It just, it took me a little bit too. Um, and there's no, it, it's, if it was easy, everybody would do it, right? Oh yeah. This is a life, lifelong journey. So I mean, <laughs> you don't wake up one day and be like, well, holy shit, I am perfect. I like, figured that, it out. Yeah. Yeah. I tell my daughter all the time. She's like, um, you know, at the high school, they have to find a track. So there's like 26 different shops that you can choose from and she's not sure what she wants to do. I said, McKenna, you're 14 years old, you know, dad still doesn't know what he wants to do when he grows up. So I'll figure it out. When I let you know, we'll get there. You don't have to decide at 14, you know, let's go find some tracks and see what you're interested in. Yeah. So when I get there, I'll I'll let you know too, you know, I always say that. I don't know what I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. It's Seriously. like, honey, you were on. You know, I'm going to be 45. I'm halfway to 90. I have no idea what I'm going to do when I get up. So <laughs> we'll get there at some point. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So if somebody wanted to get you to speak at yeah. an event or whatever, do they go to michaelchasespeaks.com? That's to my, yeah, that's that? the easiest way. Yeah. You can just go to the website and uh, take a look, see if we'd be a good fit. And uh, they want to schedule a call or something. That's the biggest thing is just I want to get on the phone with people. If it makes sense, it makes sense. If I can impact your audience in any way, I would, I'd be, you know, I'd be blessed to be able to do that. And uh, we can make it work. And if not, that's great too. Maybe I know somebody that can help them out. If it I commend me. you, seriously. And, you know, earlier you called the other guy a superhero. You're not giving yourself enough credit. Because you saved that, that little yeah. girl's life. And Thank you. you didn't know if another blast was coming. But you we didn't. You ran into it anyways. So you yeah. put other people before your own self, and that's amazing. I commend you. Thank you. I really appreciate the kind words. Yeah, of course. You deserve it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to add? No, I don't think so. No, I just want to appreciate and, and thank you for the opportunity to come on here and uh, 
hopefully, you know, in, impact some of the audience members you have. And um, I just, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity. Of course. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. You got to do me a favor. Say park the car. Park the car. <laughs> park the car. Park the car. Yeah. That's what we do. Yeah. I love it. It's the best. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me this week. If any of my episodes resonate with you, would you please make sure that you reach out to me? It's very important that I know the work that I'm doing is actually beneficial. And if you just find good value in these, please make sure that you subscribe, you're rating, and you're reviewing. Share it with your friends, especially if you know somebody could actually use this information in their own life. That's what these are here for. Keep finding strength. Until next time.